Hey, welcome to Faith Lutheran Church. Uh, if you've got your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to go to John 3. Um, as Jeff said, we are in the middle of a sermon series called Long Story Short. And we began our sermon series a couple weeks ago, uh, really looking at this idea of what is God's story? Who is God's story? And, and the story of God, of course, is found in Scripture. And it's not just about um, God's story but it's about God revealing himself uh, to humanity, to you and to me, to really understand uh, who God is. And so for 12 weeks, we're doing this uh, 50,000 uh, altitude flyover of the Bible. We're not going into detail, um, but we're really spending some time panning back and really looking at uh, who is God and uh, how has he revealed himself to us. And so thus far, uh, we have looked at God and his character uh, as a God of uh, creation, a God of rescue, a God of relationship, a God of conquest, kingdom warning. And then if you were here last Sunday, uh, John shared with us a little bit about uh, he is the God of the comeback. And I love that idea, that concept, that no matter how down and out you feel you are, how much you feel like you just, you're on the ropes and you can't move forward, God somehow, some way, over and over and over, throughout Scripture and in our lives says, don't count me out. I am going to bring you back. Uh, and so it's the, the idea of a comeback. And so today, um, we're going to look ahead uh, to the next character trait of who God is. That God is the one who initiates. God is the one who moves from here to here. God is the one who is not satisfied to stay in heaven, but God is the God of the coming. And we're going to look at a very familiar story in John 3. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for a day to gather again in your presence, to be reminded of who you are and whose we are in you. God, we thank you uh, that you have not forgotten your people in the past and you haven't forgotten your people today. So Lord, as we unpack uh, yet another character trait of you today, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, you might remember uh, there was a great entertainer, a stunt guy, back in the 1960s. His name was Robert Craig Knievel. He grew up in Butte, Montana, and uh, as a teenager, uh, there was another stunt man who came to town who was doing tricks. And uh, Robert thought to himself, well, I can do that. Uh, on my motorcycle, and people are throwing this guy a lot of money. So he printed up a bunch of flyers, rented out a local venue, and came up with a stage name, Evil Knievel. Remember that guy? And he got the crowd kind of all riled up on his motorcycle by doing some wheelies back and forth, and the crowd is just going, wow, this guy is really something. And then pretty soon, he took off on this one ramp, and he jumped 20 feet over a pair of mountain lions and a box of rattlesnakes. He landed on the other ramp, and as they say, the rest is history. 
And most of us know a little bit, or we've heard a little bit about Evil Knievel, this stunt guy, uh, doing all sorts of crazy things. And he was always looking for uh, another stunt to pull off, something bigger, something bolder, something more exciting. And over the course of his career, he made 75 uh, ramp-to-ramp jumps. And you may not know this, but he's actually in the Guinness Book of World Records, no surprise, the most verified broken bones, 433. And we only have 200 and some bones in our body, right? I mean, you do the math in terms of how that works. I mean, can you imagine how many concussions this guy had? Pretty remarkable. Well, in the late 60s, he was looking for something to really dazzle the audience. And so he made this plan uh, to uh, jump over the Grand Canyon and uh, talk to the Forest Park Service. And they said, yeah, you can't get a permit to do that. And so then after some time, he decided, well, I'll just jump over the Snake River Canyon uh, in Idaho. Well, maybe you remember that day in 1974 when Evil Knievel tried to jump over the Snake River and failed and uh, fell down into the canyon. Now, he had a parachute, but it was a, it was a pretty big failure for him. Uh, and and, and uh, as, as he failed, uh, I got to thinking, you know, how did this guy make $6 million failing on that day? It was a pretty good day at the office for him, just to, you know, fly over and then kind of come down on this parachute and walk away with $6 million. Now, the Snake River Canyon, um, I got to thinking, is, is 1,600 feet across. 1,600 feet. If he couldn't even make 1,600 feet across the Snake River Canyon, how in the world was he going to make it 52,800 feet across the Grand Canyon? I mean, that's 10 miles looking across. That's a long ways. How in the world did he think he was going to do that? And I think this idea of Evil Knievel taking off on one ramp, going over to uh, and landing on another ramp, and in the middle is the Grand Canyon, is a great image for us as we think about the human condition. As we think about our desire, our longing to be in relationship with God that there is this chasm, that there is this gap that we look out over beyond and we think to ourselves, how can I bridge the gap? How can I get to the other side? How can I be in relationship with God? And this image really demonstrates, I think, the human condition, what people have always gone through in all of time. See, back when God created the world... It says that it was good, that God created the world good, and there was this union between God and God's creation. And then God created humanity, and the Bible tells us that it was very good. And humanity had this wonderful relationship with God until sin entered the world. And that, of course, is when this chasm came into the world. Do I need to use a different mic, Jeff? Possibly. Okay, just my connectors. It's a story of my life, right? My, should I try that one or this one? Okay. So when sin came into the world, there was this chasm between humanity and God. There was this separation 
between humanity and God. And this is really the story that we've been looking at over and over and over throughout the Old Testament of God's people looking out across this chasm, trying to be in relationship with God and doing their very best sometimes and other times just failing miserably. But over and over and over, what we read throughout the Old Testament is that no matter how many times God's people, the Israelites, try to rebridge the gap with God, they fail, much like evil can evil, but they don't have a parachute and they go down into the proverbial canyon. And this is our human condition today. There continues to be this gap. This canyon, this chasm that all of us feel in our lives. And we long to be back in relationship with God. The 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal said it this way. All human beings have a God-shaped hole in their lives. And what Pascal is saying is that each one of us was born with something missing, a longing deep in our soul to be in relationship with God again, how God created us to gather and be connected to our Heavenly Father. And so we go through life, wandering the earth, longing for this connection, this relationship and maybe you've seen this uh, slide before, this image uh, of this, this disconnect, this chasm, that we're on the one side, broken and sinful, and there's God on the other side, holy and perfect and righteous, and there's this gap in the middle, and the sin separates us from God. The Old Testament writer, uh, the psalmist, explains it this way. If, the, if, if you, Lord, kept a record of our sins, who could stand? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no one. And so in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes it this way in terms of our relationship between us and God. He says, no one is righteous. No one, none, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. I mean, Paul and, and the Old Testament writers just paint this picture that it is absolutely hopeless for us to be able to try and connect with our Creator, the one who is perfect. Now, we've tried, right? People throughout history have tried to connect with God on the other side of that chasm. And we've really kind of done it in three different ways. One, through being sincere. Two, through being good. And three, through being religious. So let's start with being sincere. Oftentimes we hear, you know, the way to connect with God is just to be sincere. Doesn't matter what you believe doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't even matter what you do, how you behave in your life, as long as you believe it, if, as long as you're sincere in your heart. I once had a friend who would sign all of his emails, be true to yourself. That's exactly what people do. They think, that's how I'm going to connect with God, is I'm going to be true to myself. And when I'm true to myself, I'm going to be able to connect with God. But the Bible tells us in Proverbs 14, there is a way that seems right to each person, but it ends in death. See, sincerity, just being sincere, 
is not going to get you across the canyon. It's not going to get you across the chasm. It's not going to get you across that void. We might think it will because it just, we're just going to be sincere and true to ourselves. The second way is being good. Being good. And as we think about being good, uh, we think, well, you know, good people go to heaven, right? There are sheep and goats. I'm a good person, so I'm going to heaven. I'm not going to hell with all the goats. And, and I do pretty good things, right? And so we go through our lives doing all these good things, and we think to ourselves, if God is a God of love, then good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And so I'm just going to be good. And so we do that over and over and over, and we think, well, that must be the way to bridge the gap between us and God is by being good or doing good. The problem with that idea is it's not in the Bible. This is a human idea of bridging the gap, bridging the chasm between us and God is somehow going to help us to connect with God. This is what Scripture says as it relates to being, uh, doing good. Isaiah 64 in the Old Testament. All of our righteous acts... I'm done with that, Mike. All of our righteous acts are like polluted garments or filthy rags. All of our righteous acts are like polluted garments or filthy rags. That's the problem. No matter what we do, it still turns up as garbage, filthy rags. No, and, and Paul, again, in the New Testament says this in Ephesians 2. Salvation, being in a right relationship with God forever, is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. So here's the good news. Uh, when you get to heaven, if you're going to heaven, or if you get to heaven... There's not going to be anybody up in heaven going, you know what I did to get here? They're just going to be bragging all day long about their good deeds when they were on earth. I mean, nobody wants to hear that, right? Nobody wants for all eternity, right? I mean, Facebook is enough right now for people to brag, right? But there is no Facebook in heaven. It is in Second Hesitations 4.16. I read it the other day. I think Facebook's going to be in the pit of hell myself, but that's, that's just my opinion. But isn't bragging the worst? It just, that, that, there's not going to be any bragging in heaven. I'm pretty excited about that. And there's not going to be any bragging because there are no good works for anybody to say, hey, look what I did. Be like, nah, so what? So your good works aren't going to cut it no matter what you do. So the third way that people uh, try to bridge the gap is they're religious. And this really is what all religions are about, bridging that gap through action, through how you live your life through religious deeds, following the rules, following the law, uh, following the, the things that are going on according to your religion that you're supposed to do, not doing the things that you're supposed to do according to your holy book or to your holy uh, person or whoever is teaching. And we see this in all major world religions. In Hinduism, they've got something called karma. And it basically means your good works need to outweigh your bad works. And if, if that all works out, then you're good to go. 
In Buddhism, they have this teaching, this idea that we just need to meditate a little bit more, focus a little bit more on ourselves. We need to avoid really bad behaviors. And if we do those things and don't do these things in a religious way, then we're good to go. Islam is the same way. They have to follow five pillars of the faith. They have to believe in Allah. Just make a profession of faith. They have to uh, pray five times a day. They have to uh, give alms or uh, give money. Uh, they have to make a hajj or go on a pilgrimage uh, to Mecca at some point in time. And they need to fast during Ramadan. You do those five things and you might make it to heaven. Did you hear that? The premise of Islam is you might make it. You might not. See, in Islam, for the Muslim, there is no assurance. You can follow all the rules all day long, and at the end of the day, the Muslim will look at themselves and say, well, maybe we'll just see, we'll flip a coin and see what happens, because God is sovereign. Allah is sovereign. There is no assurance. But make no mistake about it, Islam is based on being religious and doing good works. Being religious, and we think to ourselves, well, I just need to be religious. Then I'll make it across the gap. Then I'll make it across the chasm. And in many ways, this is how the Jewish faith uh, unveiled itself over time. When God came to Abraham back in the day, God always meant for this to be about a relationship, a connection between God and God's people, the Israelites. But over time people took the relationship and turned it into something that it was never supposed to be. It was always meant to be a relationship, and what the Jewish people did is they turned it into a religion. Now, I know many of you are reading uh, the Bible from cover to cover right now, right? How many of you are reading the Bible cover to cover? Yeah, bunch of hands. That's awesome. We're in Leviticus right now, right? Lots of rules. It's a little dense, right? Don't have relationship with your sister, your cousin, your mother, your, you know, all these different people. And you're like, really? Does this really need to be in the Bible? But you got to conclude that if it's in the Bible, if they had to put the rule in place, it's because that's how people were living their lives. They were sick in their relationships. And God said, don't be like those sick people, those detestable people in their relationships. That's disgusting. Don't do that. So God's putting in all these rules, and and we're reading through the book of Leviticus right now going, my goodness, how many times does God have to tell us to not marry our sister? They didn't get it. So God had to keep telling them over and over. And so what's going on over time, and we we can see this, right? We can see how what started out as a relationship over time turns into a religion, a bunch of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts. And by the time Jesus came to the earth, there was this group of Pharisees, and they were the strict people. There were only about 6,000 of them. They were the ones who were, followed the rule of the law to a T. They were known as the ones who were set apart because they were really good at following the rules. They were rule keepers. And they followed the rules because they read the Old Testament and they knew that when God's people strayed from the rules, bad things happened. 
And so they, they had really good intentions early on. They wanted to be in a relationship with God, and they wanted to have a healthy relationship with God and one another. So they said, we're going to follow the rules. And over the time, and over time, the rules became all about the rules and less about the relationship with God. And things started to fall apart. And this is the context into which Jesus came into the world. And so we're going to look at John 3 here this morning. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a religious guy. And so one day, Nicodemus, this religious Pharisee, shows up Jesus to, to come talk to Jesus. And he's really got the same question that we've been talking about over and over and over. How do I bridge the gap? How do I do that? How do I connect with God? Because I think Nicodemus felt in his heart, he knew that no matter how religious he was, he still felt disconnected from God. No matter how much he tried, no, how much, how, no, no matter how much effort he put into following all the letters of the law, he still felt disconnected from God. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you're a young rabbi. How can I reconnect with God as I was created to be? How can the creator connect with the creation? How can a holy and perfect God connect with me, a sinful human being, and I try in all these ways, and yet I've still got this God-shaped hole in my heart. I just cannot bridge the chasm. And so Jesus explains it to him. He says, well, this is how it works. And the conversation goes back and forth between Nicodemus and Jesus. And Nicodemus, frankly, he's just getting more and more confused. He's getting frustrated. He doesn't understand what's going on. Finally, Jesus cuts to the chase. He looks at Nicodemus. And in John 3, 13, we hear these words. Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, No one has ever come, gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you want to know how to bridge the gap? You're looking at him. It's me. I am the one. He calls himself the Son of Man. Only the Son of Man can do that. Only the Son can do this. Now, Jesus uses this language over and over throughout the New Testament. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. And what he's really doing is he's, he's clarifying and highlighting his humanity. Because at other times and places, Jesus refers to him as God's Son. 
So who are you, Jesus? Are you the son of God or are you the son of man? Are you divine or are you human? Jesus says, yes. I'm divine and I'm human. And they're like, we don't get it. He said, don't worry about it. You'll get it someday. But today, know that I am the son of man. I am a human being just like you. And I am the one who can bridge the gap between creator and creation. Only me. I'm the only one that can do it. And in that moment, Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus and to us this profound mystery of how God comes down from heaven and does what we can't do for ourselves. And Jesus, of course, uses this imagery of uh, Moses back in the wilderness. He says, you remember back when you guys were wandering around in the wilderness and you guys misbehaved? And so God said, snakes? Yeah, I remember that. So the people were getting bitten by these deadly snakes and they cry out to God and said, God, we are so sorry for what we have done. And so God looks at Moses and said, okay, Moses, here's what I want you to do. On a pole, put a bronze snake. And anybody who's been bitten by a snake, that person needs to look at the bronze snake. They have to look at it and believe that they will be healed. Jesus says, that's me. Someday I am going to be lifted up on a pole. And you need to look to me and actually believe that I can bring healing, that I can bring restoration to your life. It's only me who can fulfill this gap. This theological concept is called the incarnation. You've probably heard that term before. Not carnation, that's a flower. Incarnation. And incarnation simply means that God, uh, the perfect God, became a human being like you and me. You know, when I was a kid um, growing up, uh, I didn't like ants. Anybody like ants? Nobody likes ants? Well, when I was a kid growing up, whenever I saw a colony of ants, uh, I would just go and step on them. I mean, I just, I was kind of mean. I didn't like, I didn't like, I didn't like how they felt crawling on me. Occasionally, I would, uh, you know, get uh, around some uh, biting ants, and, and, and I didn't like that they bit me either. So whenever I would see ants, I would just walk over to a, a, an ant mound, and I would just squish those ants because it just felt so, I know Dan's looking at me like, are you, man, who are you? <laughs> I didn't like ants. And not only did I not, uh, did I just squish the ants, I also had a magnifying glass. Anybody have a magnifying glass with ants? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I did not like ants, and so I would just kill those ants any way that I could. Now, today, I still don't like ants. Don't like ants. But I, when I see a pile of ants or, you know, ants crawling around, I don't walk over and squish them. I just get out a can of Raid. It's much simpler, uh, much, you know, just takes care of things. I don't have to worry about any of them surviving. Now, let's say that some of you are animal lovers, People who love all of God's creation, even the ants. And if you were to walk in the room and you see me with my can of Raid, 
you'd be like, oh, he's such a bad person. I need to warn those ants. And so you might stand between me and my can of rage and go over to the ants and say, guys, the big guy with the can, he's coming. Run away. Flee. Go, ants. I mean, you could try that, right? You wouldn't be successful. Those ants would just kind of sit there until my can of rage showed up on them, and then they would really sit there. But if you became an ant, and you got down on their level, and you spoke ant language, and said to those other ants, somebody's coming for you. You need to get away. You could actually save those ants. You would be the mediator between me, between Brian, and the ants. And this is exactly what's going on as we look at the human condition and the chasm between us and God. There we are, helpless, vulnerable, trying to cry out to God. And God says, I've got a better plan. I'm going to send a mediator. Someone who is going to get down at your level. Someone who is going to talk to you. Someone who is going to teach you about me. Someone who is going to rescue you. And this is what the entire Bible points to in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who has come to rescue us, to be the bridge that we cannot be for ourselves. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2. There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God in humanity. The man is Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. And so we've got this image of Jesus as our bridge who has come down. No matter how much we try to reach up, God says, nope, you're not going to do it. I'm going to come down and rescue you. And the Bible tells us for all those who put their trust, put their faith, look to the cross and truly believe he will bring you healing. He will bring you restoration. And he will reconcile you to your creator in heaven. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you that in the midst of all of our futile attempts at connecting with you, both now and in history past, that you are a God who had a better plan. You are a God who said, you know what? I'm leaving this heavenly realm and I'm coming down. I'm going to do the one thing you cannot do. I'm going to bridge the gap between creator and creation, between perfect and holy and sinful and broken. 
I'm going to send Jesus. And he's going to be a perfect man. He's going to be among my people. And he's going to tell them about me. And then they're going to be invited to place their trust in him. As he went to a cross as a sacrifice for all of humanity. And so, God, I thank you for these saints assembled here today, for those who are gathered online, and maybe, Lord, for the first time understood what it means to follow you, to have that God-shaped hole filled with you. His name is Jesus. And so, God, on this day, we looked to Jesus. We look to the work of the cross. And we believe. We believe, God, that you have come to us so that we might experience you now and for all eternity. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.